Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps program in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you tonight, Miss Laura? Truthfully, I'm a little bit sick. That's how <laughs> I am tonight. <laughs> That's Kate, why I was giggling left. during my Kate Hensler thing. <laughs> I was wondering what you were going to say. Well, I'm sorry <gasps> to hear that. Yeah, it's an occupational hazard. When we see kids that are sick, we get what they have, don't we? It certainly is. That's the downside of your be-in-their-face approach, Laura, is that oh, we get their bugs pretty easily. I I'm know. I'm sorry to hear you got it. Well, thank you. And the first couple times he sneezed on me, and he was a new kid. It's the very first visit. And so oh, I'm sure Mom was excited about me coming. And the first couple times he sneezed on me, um, I thought, oh, maybe this is allergies. But last night when I started feeling really bad and really sick in the middle of the night, I thought, uh-oh, that was not a That was not <laughs> Well, you know, Laura, so many, well, let me speak for myself. So many of the kids I see, I just call it the cruds. You know, they're congested. They're, they have runny noses. Right. They have yucky chests that they're coughing. And it's very hard to know. and. It, what it is, you know, sometimes yeah. parents know, sometimes they don't. And if we didn't see them at all, if they weren't a little bit that way, I have kids I wouldn't see for two or three months because they really stay that way. So it was very hard, actually, but we do get it. We do. And actually he did, it was the first visit, and this little boy who's essentially nonverbal, and he said nine words, nine new words. So I can't wait to see him when he's not sick. Because I think he's going to do great. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so if I sneeze or cough or whatever, I'm going to. Johnny just highlighted the mute button to remind me to press mute for uh, when I go, if I can anticipate that I'm going to blow you all away with a cough or sneeze. Hopefully I can remember that. All right, let's get going with our real agenda rather than talking about. My illness, but I do want to announce that I'm going to be in Atlanta on July 14th and then in Memphis the next week on Thursday, July 21st, and I'm so excited about those dates, and both those dates are filling up, so I hope that we're just going to have great conferences in both of those cities, and if you're near there or can drive there or want to fly in, I would love to have you those days, and you can find out more information about registration on my website at teachmetotalk.com. And, and for our more northern off. listeners, let me just say I do try and get a plug-in for the more northern states every now and again. <laughs> One might think she has a little bias towards the south, but I am trying to get her to go north. I keep saying, now's the time. The weather's good up north. But oh, here Atlanta and Memphis, and you always say it has to do with where you have access to intervention providers. I know. That's totally it, and I have a a really cute uh, listener, reader, person who's writes me quite a lot who lives in New Mexico. And Leslie, if you're nice. listening. Now, that would be a good winter spot, I think. <laughs> <laughs> she she was really cute. She, she'll she send me things and say, what about if we try this? You know, and, and truthfully, and I know I've said this on the show before and you've just alluded to it and joked about it, 
I will go anywhere as long as I have a list of providers in the early intervention program because without those lists, we just get a ho-hum turnout, and I'm not really big into that. I like to have <laughs> full rooms and, and people who want to be there, and it just, and again, you know, this is a business, and so you have to be able to cover those expenses. So right. I would love to go to some more of those faraway places that seem far away to me anyway. Um, if I have good access to email addresses and home addresses for providers in a state early intervention program. Otherwise, it's a harder sell to uh, get us to book there. So anyway, that's that. Thank you for bringing that up. But that's pretty funny. You I know you're it. teasing me. Yeah. <laughs> but I do uh, know we have uh, listeners all over the place, and, and, you know, that's what it comes down to, where you have – where you have access to people who do what we do. So if they're right. in the know, let let Lar know um, how she yeah. can have access, and we'll try and get her to go other parts of the country, <laughs> not just south. <laughs> although I'm I consider myself a pseudo southerner being here in Kentucky, but I know true southerners do not think of this as the south. But to me, it's kind of south. So. It's south to me now since we've been here so long too. But you're right, my friends in Mississippi will tease me about living in the north now since we're Mm -hmm. especially in Louisville so anyway that's funny okay when we ended the show last week we were talking about the things that we're going to do this week and one of the things that we said we were going to talk about uh, was using praise with children to motivate them and I alluded to that some times providers get stuck in, um, well, actually, this is all due to a book, and I'm not going to say the name of the book because I don't want the authors to sue me, but there's a book that's been written, and I've heard it and and seen it talked about on um, some listservs that I read that speech pathologists from all over the country participate in, and one of those listservs, there was a long discussion several months ago about not overusing praise with children, and and how we praise children in therapy is important because the studies talk about that, and and the studies really apply to older children, that when you praise a child very generically, like, you're so smart that he or she may be less apt to try something that he or she might not succeed in. And so when you use um, a more specific form form of praise, such as you worked hard on that or I like the way you did blah, blah, and and talk about their effort and their attempts at trying and not really talking about the end result, then they it makes them more eager to try and they're less afraid to fail. And so some some speech pathologists on this listserv were saying that they had really used praise in the wrong way and that and the and alluded to these other things that, that said that they weren't ever going to praise children for how they um performed in speech because they felt like just the intrinsic reward of communicating should be enough. And to me, as a praise junkie, as I lovingly refer to my personality, (laughs) 
that would be horrible for someone not to ever acknowledge that I was trying hard or doing a good job or whatever. And so reading those kinds of things, you know, and of course I internalize everything. And so reading those those statements about how I just think that children should learn that they have to communicate to communicate and we're not really supposed to make those little statements like, oh, you did so good or that was great or, you know, our standard woohoo and yay, (laughs) (laughs) that those kinds of things were not going to be parts of their therapy sessions anymore and I just can't even stop myself (laughs) from praising a child. Can you? No, it's definitely part of my routine. I mean, it's as automatic as a lot of the other things I do, so it would be very hard. I don't know. To me, that's it's, again, kind of bringing down a theory that may apply to a typically developing 8-year-old and saying, well, if it's true with an 8-year-old, then therefore it's true with a 2-year-old. And I just right. think that's silly. That's like saying good therapy for an 8-year-old is good therapy for a 2-year-old, and I don't think that's true. And I don't think that um, – I think so many of the kids we see, Laura, if we didn't do our yays and our woohoos, you know, we wouldn't get nearly as much from them because part of our approach is get them up, get them up, get, get their motors running, get them right. happy, get them excited, get them with you. And if we're not doing Get woo-hoo, them motivated. Right, yeah, motivated. get them motivated to mm-hmm. repeat the – Repeat what got the woohoo or the yay or the oh you did it the first time yeah mm-hmm. I just can't imagine I, and I've had parents one recently was a dad you know dad sometimes moms seem to uh, warm up to that woohoo yay stuff maybe a little bit more easily than some of our dads and I had a dad say to me recently he's just doing it because you're saying yay and I was like yeah <laughs> then what's wrong with that I mean you know it's working right. I mean, he I was performing, and he was shining, and he was looking for more praise. And guess what? He got it. But, yeah, I just think that's overgeneralizing uh, an interesting theory to apply to all children. And, you know, yeah. if we get too darn specific about what it is we're woohooing and yaying about, we're going to lose the kids we work with because they don't really hey. care that they got that bilabial sound out. <laughs> or that they understood, I mean, they won't understand it. If you say, right. I really like your cognitive processing and you're really assigning meaning to more words now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, they're not they going to get know that. You're, yeah. yeah, that you're tickled with how they're doing. Woohoo, yay, and that's enough, yeah. I think. And I, yeah. I, I'll just ignore that. The, the way I do other things I don't agree with and continue <laughs> to do what I know works. Well, Laura, don't you kind of, as you see kids and as you know, in the beginning, you know, well, let me say this. I think in the beginning when I'm just kind of warming kids up, getting to know them, getting them comfortable with me, learning what they're capable of, um, we're having our initial successes, I probably am a bit more generous with the woohoo and the yay. You know, but as you know, and then I do kind of not – certainly don't give it up altogether and sometimes frankly I have to remind myself maybe we need a few more yoohoo and yays because he's not as excited right. and not as engaged and not as with me as I know he can be but I back off on that some you know because I'm I'm raising the bar on him a little bit right. as we go exactly. along so I'm not as 
so complimentary of every little thing or every effort. But that's something you know to do as you've done it and you know what they're capable of. But you've exactly. got to kind of figure that out first. So. Yeah. Well, and when you do continuously raise the bar, uh, you right. know, that's just part of the therapeutic process and the things that happen that they get the most encouragement for at the beginning, you know, those just those things get harder and harder and harder and the most reward with verbal praise. But I just can't imagine purposely deciding that I'm not going to be excited about a child's successes or tell him how great I think he's doing. And as far as rewarding effort or using praise with effort, talking with all of our little guys is effortful. It's it's hard for them or else we wouldn't be there. If things were moving along great and, and language weren't a big hurdle for them to overcome, they surely wouldn't be seeing us. We would, you know, it's rewarding the effort for us really is all of those first word attempts and, and getting a correct production of a sound or, or if we're working on a kid just with social interaction. I mean, I have some kids that the first day that they really connect with me, I mean, that's what I'm so excited about. So I just thought it was an interesting kind of theoretical conversation to have about praise and I just certainly don't see myself withholding any of that <laughs> regardless because just for what we see in our everyday practices and in our everyday lives and again knowing what that you know words of encouragement and words of appreciation and praise and all you know whatever you want to characterize verbal praise as that's kind of what makes me tick and so if someone decided to withhold that from me purposefully i would feel deflated you know i would that's how there's a book and i don't know if you've ever read it before kate it's a it's a christian book it's love languages it's uh dr gary chapman and he says that we all feel loved from certain um, expressions, and some people are words people, and some people are physical touch people, and some people are acts of service, like they feel loved and appreciated, like for a wife, that would be if her husband vacuumed her car, you know, she would feel, oh gosh, or helped her with the dishes. Some people, it's gifts. There's one more, there's five, and I can't remember. Maybe I've said them all, but anyway, for me, words do it. So, um, I, again, I, I just I can't imagine that. That would be a very dreary existence uh, for me not to give or get um, those words of encouragement and praise and, uh, and you did it and great job and thank you, you know, those kinds of things. That really kind of keeps me motivated to keep going as an adult. And, and I think we probably have kids on our caseload that, that once words mean something to them, um, that makes them tick too and makes them feel appreciated and valued and respected and all of those other things that we don't necessarily think about with a two-year-old, but they certainly have those internal um, needs that have to be met too. So I just thought that was an interesting conversation for us to have. So if you've read that book or had those discussions within your own little professional circles, you know, my opinion on that is we for toddlers and preschoolers for that for communication to still be so difficult for them that we have to use praise as one of the things that we're one of our strategies and one of our our uh, rewards. I can't imagine again 
I cannot Jamie either. And, you know, so, yeah. so many of the kids, Laura, that I see, and I think your, your case is somewhat similar, caseload, it's about establishing a social connection. And I yeah. love when kids get to the point where they're cueing me to yay. You know, they're they're yeah. clapping, and I'm like, woohoo, you get it. And that's something yeah. sometimes we have to teach. You know, it does, I mean, some of our kids do. do it the first time, and some of our kids take a couple months or so to get to the point where they're telling you, hey, you forgot to yay for me, even if it's just by clapping their hands and giving you a twinkle and a little smile. They're saying, right. uh, excuse me, I did something good. Um so, you know, well, I can't imagine trying to work on social connectedness and not having it be a positive, you know, situation where you are giving them a lot of praise for whatever it is, whatever skill or whatever thing you're targeting. And that's well, part and of I it. want kids, yeah, and kids that are delayed often have a harder time kind of coming up with their own little internal loops. That, And by that I mean those little messages that you tell yourself because, you know, again, language for them didn't come as easily and isn't as they're not as again intrinsically motivated to use those kinds of words um because they're light talkers and so I want them to feel good about themselves and to internalize that and eventually in their own little minds be doing that wow that was good oh that was great and you want yeah. kids to want to try and you want them to want to please other people that's what makes society, you know, everybody. It's kind of a social thing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We hope. We hope that's Yeah, you hope. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just thought it was a really kind of interesting read. And then to, I had read about it before just on the Internet and then took a look at the book after I saw so many comments about it, after I've really, really seen it on um a couple of those different boards, and I just thought it was something worth talking about. And I don't think we had ever really talked about that before, had we? No, have we? because we both are firm believers in lots and lots and lots of praise. So that would be a very right. foreign topic for us. I, I can't even imagine yeah. pretending to to embrace it. I just think mm, that doesn't even make sense. Yeah, and for older kids, I can see that you wouldn't want a kid to be afraid to fail. Absolutely. So, yeah, I can certainly see that with elder how some older children and looking at their personalities and looking at their performances, you might decide, oh, I better be praising the effort here and not just the outcome. I can see that. But for our little guys, nope, I think we're going to stick with what we know works. And the yays and the woohoos and the good jobs and the squeezes and all the other little things we do when they really pop out. I'm a big high-fiver. Let me say that. I yeah. like the high-five. Me too. <laughs> Constantly saying, give me five, woo That's a big one on my yeah. agenda for some reason. Well, same, it's, same meaning. Great job. Same meaning and that whole high-five thing. Boy, the OTs would love that you're doing that because that really gives kids that body-on-body contact and that uh, deep pressure with slapping that hand. And, so and that, you know, that is kind of why I've kind of gotten into doing it more, and I do see that sometimes it kind of um, – kind of brings them back a little bit, you know, kind of brings them right there, and they're yeah. give, they can get them to give you five. It's like, yep, they're ready for the next one. So I work that well, in a lot. I do, too, and I, I do it a lot at the end of an activity when a kid is more naturally wanting to leave you and uh-huh. naturally kind of wanting to turn away. Like, uh-huh. okay, that's all done. I'm going to run away and find something else to occupy my time. Doing that high five right then does kind of redirect their attention. If they haven't already zipped the toy bag or 
you know, gotten ready right there staying with me to choose the next activity, it's a great way to kind of reconnect and, you know, send a little message. Nope, you're staying here with me, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Get another one. We're moving on to something else. Uh Yeah. I am not going to chase you. You're going to sit right here. So, yeah. (laughs) I like I like to use it that way too. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm glad we talked about that and we have made our feelings known on that. What about the next subject that we were going to talk about today, Kate? And that is the update on the little girl that you talked about. Now it's been maybe even six weeks ago on the show. Um, are you ready to give us a little update about her? I am. Well, Laura, you kind of talked or mentioned this last week. I don't know if you want me to go here, but. I had asked you kind of at the end of the podcast, said I had a big question, and then, you know, later that day you said, um, well, right after question? the show I called yeah, right, you. Right after the show. What was it? What was it? She couldn't wait. And, of course, I couldn't wait either because so, I wanted to run the spire. Um, so should I share that little situation? Yeah, go ahead. I, okay. Well, that was, and this was something that I honestly, um, not being a real-life speech therapist, had never really seen or noticed or maybe discovered is the word with a child I had worked with. And Laura said, well, anyway, here's what it is. Um, With this child, for whatever reason, you know, she had gotten to the one-word phase, and she probably had that magic 40 to 50 words but I was having a bear of a time getting to two-word phrases with her, and I, do, I was trying everything I knew to do, um, but still I'd get one of the two words, typically the second word, but whatever. Sometimes it was the first, sometimes the second, never two. And this little girl was a good signer, and for whatever reason I just one time decided, okay, I'm just going to sign the words but not say the words with her, like use that as the the model, Um and I had done that with single words, but not two words. And somehow I just right. did it with two words, thinking it wouldn't work, but then it did work. And I brought that up to you. <laughs> like, I don't get why this would work. It really shouldn't have worked in theory, in my mind, but it did work. Um, and, of course, I, you know, I'm more of a, um, oh, I don't know what the word would be. I, I, I find the theory interesting, but I find the reward of having it work even better than the theory. So, of course, I went with it because it's like, well, for whatever reason, it's working. So I'm going to keep doing this, which I did. But then I wanted to ask Laura about, well, do you see this with kids? And, you know, it makes me wonder in 12 years of doing this, I wonder how many kids this might have worked with had I been lucky enough to discover it earlier. Right. And I don't know if do you want to just speak to what you told me at that point or well, I don't remember exactly what I said that day, other than, yeah, I had seen that, and that's really interesting when that happens, and you know that that child is having trouble motor planning. I mean, you knew that before right. she um, that you discovered that she was having a hard time going from one word to two because it took her so long to cons- get those first word attempts going, and she had all those other markers right. for children who have those verbal motor planning difficulties. But that one word to two words, and sometimes it's... It happens with kids who, and I'm referring to the motor planning part now, that they can't even get from one syllable to the next. You know, those are the kids that instead of Elmo, it's Mo or Which everything. Which is how she started. Right. You know, I mean, that's right. how it was in the beginning. And then she'd gotten right. to simple two-word 
or um, two-syllable words, and then yeah. a little bit. But yeah. anyway, so it was a slow progression on her. Right, but this is where, where a lot of therapists might not even newer therapists, and especially moms listening, listening, they might not have noticed how difficult it really is for their kids or children on their caseload to combine syllables or even really thought about it that much, you know, if they're not into theory and kind of overanalyzing every single thing the kid does. But that's where a lot of people really notice it is when they're trying to go from single words to two-word phrases that a kid is just having tons and tons of difficulty moving on to that milestone. And the reason that the signs work or those kinds of visual cues is it almost takes the pressure off imitating it when they've heard the model, the auditory model. And so that's, again, kind of the theory with why it works. But it is interesting when you've not had a kid respond to that so well the first few times that you see it, you do think, whoa, how come she can do it when she sees it but not when she hears it? And, again, I think it just refers to how atypical that kid's little system is to start with. Um, It just, it's different. It's not what we would expect. But, you know, again, hallelujah, you found something that worked and that she could respond to. And you're, she's, that wasn't just a fluke time in that that first session that you saw that. She's done that week after week, right? Right. We've, I've continued (laughs) to use that. And she's, she's coming along now. She's now, if it's something really simple like by and a word she has in her repertoire, she can imitate something you do verbally. I do verbally. Right. But she still, the more novel the phrase, the better she's going to do with just the sign cue with no verbal um, cue at all. Just give her the sign. Right. And, and she's starting to do some really kind of well-rehearsed, simple two-word phrases. And so we're doing the woo-hoo a lot for her because she's... Yeah. <laughs> Kind of made it over the the hump, you know. We. So what you, were your first? What were your? What do you remember your first couple of phrases that you keyed with signs that she could do that with? That might be helpful to some therapists that are listening. What kinds of things did you find the most success with at the beginning? Was it more plus something or yes, something? What more, were your patterns? More candy or more cookies? She's big on both of those. Yeah. Um, and you just signed that. You did not give the verbal cue. You just signed right. it, and she popped those little words right out as you sign it. Right. And I did, and I did early on did a lot of whatever, please. And I always did. Of course, I only used signs that she knew well. And she's a good signer, right. so signs I knew that was a strength for her. She understood right. them quickly and used them quickly, way quicker than she got the words. Let me tell you that. But um, yeah. so yeah, those more with something, and only a, only a word she knew with the sign. So right. was, you know, more baby, more eat, yeah. more cookie. Yeah. More bye bye, more what more night night. She's very big on night night. Everything goes night night. So uh-huh. I wanted more night night, I'd sign more night night and she'd say more night night. I'd think, Oh my gosh, there it is. So. <laughs> yeah, and you know one thing that some therapists might not be doing is some of those things that you're saying aren't really what parents or even, again, some therapists might not think about as grammatically correct or like more eat, but we don't care about that (laughs) at the beginning because you're working to get that phrase and you're working to get something that she would be meaningful for her and, again, she would be motivated enough to do. And so you might have some of those little phrases that aren't as our 
pick most, you know, the pickiest speech pathologists would say, you know, your your syntax is off. You know, grammatically that doesn't make a lot of sense. Who cares? More night night. If she wants to play night night fifteen times in a row, more night night is the way to do that and to say that and to elicit that. And so, don't be afraid if again a therapist who is newer is listening or a mom and thinking, gosh, I don't want her to practice something like that because it's later on that's not going to sound right. Again, who cares? at this phase, that would be, um, you're just working to get that phrase combination and so whatever words you want to stick together. And from a practicality standpoint, Kate, you pointed out you had to go with what she already knew. You can't just do two new words or two new signs for that. It's got to be something that's well rehearsed and that she's practiced and that she's comfortable with. And from that theoretical standpoint, something she can motor plan, something you've already heard her say a lot so that it's there and it's she's ready and she's able to combine that so those were that was a beautiful example of using kind of the theory (laughs) to get what you wanted her to really do so even if you stumbled on it kind of by accident boy what a revelation you know that really worked really i i and i look back and think i probably had a few others who might have done that (laughs) had i gotten lucky enough on them to um you know but then there you go. We have a speech therapist on board now, and she doesn't really sign with kids. So I'm not going to feel huh. too bad because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, well, I'm, I'm giving it my best yeah. shot here. <laughs> You'll have to give me the update on that later. I want to hear yeah. how that's going later. <laughs> okay. We'll just really chuckle about that between ourselves. But anyway, um, that sounded kind of catty. Um, back to let me get back on topic here. But so she's doing better. She's, she's really doing better. I mean, just you know, like I said, beginning to use a, a few very well rehearsed. Bye bye, daddy. Bye bye, hi. No, I'm not sure. Hi. Definitely bye bye. Whatever. You know, some uh-huh. noun that she's had. She's using those spontaneously. Um, and her mom is excited she's over the hump because you yeah, said the mom think, was kind of yeah, she right like, she like, definitely recognizes yeah. you know we are definitely again making you know we took us a while to get that 50 words let me tell you <laughs> and um then of course mom was well aware that the focus was two word phrases and they weren't really coming so right. it all just kind of thankfully came together and she's you know also this is probably I'm more aware of this. She's always been a cute kid and fun for therapy, but I have noticed I'm not working nearly as hard to yeah <laughs> to keep. Not necessarily she was ever that hard of a kid, but very, she used to be much more particular about what we did. And you know, in recent right. sessions, I kind of leave thinking, wow, she was really open to just basically whatever I you know had her do. And in the past, she would shut me down more quickly. And, of course, I just attribute that to, well, it used to be harder for her, and now it's not right. so, you know, I kind of liken therapy for kids who are just in the beginning throes of, of learning how to talk at all. It's hard. It's painful exactly. almost. You know, it's yeah. even though we're doing backflips to make it fun, and I think that we owe kids that effort, you know, that mm-hmm. that we're going to make this as as painless as possible, but really still, it's still really hard. But in the last four or five weeks, six weeks, however long, it's like, oh, wow, you know, she really 
was willing to do things that a couple months ago, four months, three, four months ago, she might have only done for a couple minutes. And now she... You know, we'll go ahead because yeah. I have No, no, that's it. Well, it's so interesting when that happens to me, and sometimes therapists and sometimes parents look at that as her behavior is what was bad. You know, right. at the beginning when she would just only do something for a few minutes or when you would have to really work to get her to do something new that she had maybe not done before and that she wasn't as good at and didn't feel as, as successful with, they would look at that like, well, this kid is just a brat. She's just, you know, thinks she's calling all the shots here. She's mm-hmm. just really spoiled. She's just really rigid and looking at that as behavior rather than she was really trying to control her world and control respond to, oh, my gosh, this is way too hard for me. I don't think I can keep on doing it. And looking at that strictly as kind of a personality or behavioral thing rather than this is an offshoot of her difficulty communicating and kind of the, the end result of, this is too hard for me. I don't want to do it anymore. Rather, and and it still being about language rather than being about behavior or you know a, the two-year-old brattiness or whatever. So isn't that interesting that you can could really see now she's more apt to want to play with something a long time, and it can be practically anything you suggest rather than her little tried and true right. things it, that it, she likes. It to had to ha- we had to do the poo. Set that she loved in the beginning. That's really all I could get her on for any length of time, and those were our earliest words. You know, things that right. related to the poo set that she just, for whatever reason, loved. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, recently it's like, wow. And see, I always, I guess I get that. I guess you, you know, get it. Yeah, yeah. That it's hard for them, and I really try and tell parents this is hard for her. You but know, can't, I haven't you shared kids? But haven't you shared kids with other therapists who just kind of snarl up their nose and say to you, and maybe they don't say it, but you can kind of feel it at the meetings or feel it through what mom says or whatever, they somehow think, well, she acts better for you than she does for me. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, again, they think it kind of almost turns into a power struggle with them, like, no, you're going to do... We're, you know, I I'm brought Play-Doh, and yeah. so we're doing Play-Doh, and I don't uh-huh. care if I would get more words or more word attempts if I played with what you really wanted to play with. We're doing this because I've got to get you ready for preschool and because you have to follow what an adult says and because blah, 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 and all those other stupid reasons that you hear. <laughs> and so it's just so interesting to me when it when everything seems to kind of come together when – You've boiled it down to this was all about her not being able to imitate words and motor plans so that she could do those early word attempts. And how another, somebody else they really could have looked at that in the whole behavior approach, though, or the whole behavior aspect as right. she's the a other thing kid. I hear people they say she's, yeah, it's all behavior, or a lot of times right. I hear other therapists and sometimes parents too say she has such a short attention span. And yeah. I think, no, 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 not really. Right. You know, right. when it's something she really likes, and I kind of feel like it's, you know, it's our job to to keep them with us. 
and yeah. to keep it as painless as possible because really it is somewhat painful for kids. I mean, I think it's exactly. maybe painful for all of us to do things that are difficult for us, but this is something our society expects is that they're going to learn to talk, and we're there to help them do that. But it's our job to keep it um, as intriguing and as inspiring and as playful and just rewarding for them. So if it means you play with poo or it means you play with whatever other thing, you know, unless you're seeing, for whatever reason, some kids, you know. The caveat is if it's kids who love trains and you give them a train and they go into their own little world and you lose them, I do draw the line there. But if it's something that they continue to play with and include me in their play, hey, we'll do it and do it and do it and do it, you know. Exactly, yeah. But she has really gotten way past that, so. Well, and even when you have those kids that are a little bit stuck with those things, you need to do your darndest to introduce new activities. And we've talked about this a lot lately. Even if they like the trains and they're kind of stuck on the trains, you can still have the trains do more than play on one little set of tracks. The trains can, you know, you can have the trains while you play with another set of toys. And I think we use these specific examples. The train could visit the farm and the train could play with the zoo animals and the train could make tracks in the Play-Doh and the train can eat the plastic food and the train can go in the house and pretend to go night-night and take a bath and potty and, you know, do all the things that you would with your little pretend house. And even though, again, it doesn't make a whole lot of real sense, but neither do a lot of the things that we play with. And if that's how you're going to need to keep the kid to hook him and want him to play with you and stay engaged and, again, expand his attention, you know, you do those things. So, um, Well, and so often they'll do all those things with, I use train because so many kids that I work with right. are train obsessed. So, you know, they'll right. feed the train, they'll put the train night-night, they'll take the train, whatever, they'll do all those things. Now, if you pull out the baby doll, mm, maybe not. not some so will, much, some yeah. won't. But, you know, if they're going to do all those caregiving, um, pretend, early pretend play things with the train, so be it. I mean, that's and fine you're getting the me. words. Yeah, right. and you're getting the same words that you would have with your intended set of materials. And that's the thing. Who really cares what your activity is as long as you're able to target what you're there to target, which is language, you know, understanding more words and using more words. And so it doesn't really matter to me what we play with as long as we're targeting, you know, getting our end result, which is communicating better. So I don't get real hung up on that either. But, I mean, it does mean that you have to think on your feet a little bit more. And you have to be a little bit more open to expanding how you think about playing (laughs) and being, again, a little more creative with your ideas with how you're going to get a kid to participate. But, yeah, I don't don't think that's a big deal. But you did a really good job with her with um, helping her expand to phrases. And then it's just interesting, that whole behavior piece, too, because I get a lot of emails about that on the website, and then just people send me emails personally and say, you know, what do you do to treat behavior? You don't. You treat the language. You address their sensory needs. That's what you do. It's not about, you know, I'm going to make this kid mind me Mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, you're there to fix language. You're not there to... And I don't yeah, really I, generally get much negative behavior during a session, and I guess... Well, why do you think that is, Kate? <laughs> uh, 
Because I, go ahead. <laughs> because you are fun and you're engaging and you're there looking for what the kid might want to do and you're reading his signals and you're not boring and you're not making him do something that he doesn't want to do and you're not turning things into a power struggle or a fight. And you meet him where he is so that he can be successful, so that you're not working six or seven goals down the road. You're working on what he's supposed to be working on and where it can be happy and fun, and he's doing what he's supposed to do, and you're expecting realistic things from him, and that's why you don't see all that behavior, because you know what the heck you're doing. (laughs) I'm really high from the antihistamines, can you tell? I like the way you put that. I I have to concur. It is but that's interesting the truth. when you're on teams with other therapists yeah. and they talk about all the negative behavior and the yeah. terribly short attention span. And I'm kind of sitting there saying, huh, I really hadn't noticed. <laughs> but they do tend to be much more rigid therapists who kind of, right. in my mind, arbitrarily decide, no, you're going to okay. put every piece back in the puzzle. And that's yeah. the way you do a puzzle. And and I find that if you just introduce it, you know, I'm not saying I don't try and get maybe one or two more pieces, but far be it from me to decide every piece has to go back in the puzzle. You know, I kind of think, well, he did four today. That's two more than he did last week. We may get six next week. We may not. But I find that as they get better, um, as everything comes together, you know, all their abilities improve, uh-huh. they'll stay with it longer. You know, it exactly. just happens. And parents worry about that, and I always kind of say, let's give them some time. Let's give them some exposure to this. Let's not worry about, of course, they may have another therapist saying, it's terribly important that he put every piece in the puzzle. <laughs> and I kind of feel like, why? He's two. You know, I mean, right. that's not. they're not going to be graded on that. And so often that those kids who, in the beginning, that was difficult. They didn't like puzzles. They got mad. And, you know, I'd take one or two. I'd take any effort at all. Um, right. They may end up being champion puzzle completers, and not because I forced them to, but because I am allowed them to play with it and to experience it and to put it aside when they had had it to move on to something else. And And to build their skills because so many times, too, the speech therapists and the DIs, we're just looking at their language and kind of their that cognitive piece and not realizing, man, it might be really hard from a fine motor perspective or a visual, you know, motor coordination perspective for them to actually get the puzzle in the piece. And when they're struggling to do that after two or three times of it not fitting the first time they try – they get frustrated because of that and want to throw the puzzle and run away. And if you're not recognizing those things and helping them build those little successes and, again, like you said, this week we do two pieces. The next week or the next couple of weeks he gets four pieces and then, lo and behold, six or eight weeks later he's doing six pieces. And then, you know, it's your six-month IFSP, the kid who couldn't do one puzzle you know, we'll do two or three puzzles in a row, that's progress. And it takes that whole amount of time of 
from a behavior perspective, letting him kind of adjust and learn how to do it. But from a skills perspective, his coordination got better. His attention span got better. His language got better. So then he was able to do it and it not be so darn frustrating and so hard. You know, if somebody said to me, you've got to roller skate down the street 15 times, I would kick and scream and do everything I could to get out of it, too, because I can't roller skate. And that's how our kids certainly must feel, you know, again, on a less mature, on a two-year-old developmental level, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing. We don't want to do things that we're bad at. And sometimes we're not looking at kind of the whole picture and why that puzzle's not so enticing for that kid. It might be more about another skill that you hadn't even thought about. And so often I think it's a a combination of, you know, um, difficulties. It's not just that they don't get what those pictures represent. It's not just that they're not able to match them. It's not, it's, you know, right. also that they Everything. have fine motor difficulties and it's really hard for them to get the darn piece in the hole. I mean, yeah. and I guess I kind of think I'd rather have a kid do two pieces and try and gracefully move on to the next activity and allow him to build his skills over time naturally than to have a power struggle and have him shut down and get mad and by gum, I'm going to win because we don't open and a cry when he sees you yeah. coming in the door because you made him mad the week a good before. Way to build yeah. a positive relationship or a relationship that's going to lead to communication, other than right. for him to quote unquote communicate that he doesn't like me and he doesn't like therapy, you know. Right. And by that, I mean running and crying the other direction. I just think that's kind of sad. I mean, it's just really yeah. I couldn't do it. I I couldn't. So I know, but it's it is our jobs are complex in that you are looking at lots of things beyond just what you're there to really treat. And you do have to wear lots of hats and think about things maybe and for different kids it's different reasons that they're not wanting to finish whatever task, you know, for your little girl that we were talking about, you know, really motor planning, you've decided is kind of the reason that she didn't want to stay with all that other stuff because it was really hard for her at the beginning. Some kids, it's, you know, their sensory processing needs, they have to move, they have to get up, they ha- they can't sit for more than a couple of minutes. And so, again, when people try to treat that as behavior rather than it's a sensory processing issue, and they're not creative enough to think, okay, I've, I've still got to target communication, but we've got to build some little movement breaks in here. He can't sit for 25 minutes. He's got to get up every five minutes or so. You know, you've got to wear, again, think about the whole kid and the whole process and what all all of the other reasons might be that are contributing to him not wanting to do the activity or finish whatever you've started rather than just the, I introduce the activity and we're going to do it whether you like it or not. And so it is a complex thing to think about and then to do it, um, to conduct your sessions where you're thinking about that stuff and still keeping it fun and still, and again, sometimes the parent will say, well, or feel like that you're making excuses for the kid when you're not really doing that at all, you're just treating his issues and kind of meeting him where he is and then moving it along from there and building those skills over time. So 
Anyway. <laughs> anyway, on that little girl, it's all coming together. Yeah. So mom's happy, I'm, I'm happy. She's yeah. approaching three, um, you know, still has and a way to go. you've had some good successes. Yeah. Right. She loves therapy, and I think that, you know, that's part of our job. It is, them. and to get them yeah. ready for the next person. And I mm-hmm. always think if I can hand him over to the, that next person after me, that next level after me, still liking what we do, still excited about, you know, that special little play date he has every week, that's part of our job, too, is to help them love to learn. And, and again, right. it's got to be done in the right way so that you're playful and fun and enticing. And, you know, there has to be that built in, too. But if we can send them off at three or, you know, whenever we finish seeing them, whatever your cutoff is for your program, ready to kind of go on to that next level, you know, that's that's a big accomplishment, too, beyond what words they've learned or kind of what level you leave them at or how big their gap still is. You know, you've done the right thing by kind of sending them on their way, you know, ready to uh, ready for that next level. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, I'm glad that she's doing so much better and that you got over that little hump. But even if she does need speech for, uh, you know, I mean, how how long do you think she's it's going to be till she's really – an age-appropriate level, she's probably going to need speech all the way through preschool, right? Probably. I mean, I would think so, but she is yeah. doing the upward climb now, so I kind of feel like, you know, I, I'm yeah. happy with where I was able to get her, and and I know Mom is too, and so it's been, but yeah, she may well, and that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Just kind of, and the kids too that start off so significantly delayed, Sometimes it does feel like parents just think that they're, you know, uh, do you hear this, Kate? I know speech pathologists hear it. How long do you think he's going to need this? How uh-huh. long is she going to be in speech therapy? Uh-huh. You know, I, we don't know. We don't have the crystal ball. We just have to get them going and moving in the right direction so that and, and give them the help that they need. Um, I always think that's really interesting when somebody wants me to predict that. I mean, we, we cannot... You can't do it. I mean, haven't you had kids that you thought were really, really significantly delayed, but then those foundation pieces started coming in, and they look so much better at three than they did when you first started to see them right after they turned two. Absolutely. Or Yeah, or sure. kids that you've seen that you thought were going to be pretty easy, and then they kind of get stuck. Like you said, your little girl got stuck, but then she moved through it. But I've seen kids that, you know, who were – who added words, and this applies a lot to our little friends who are on the spectrum. Sometimes we can get them really um, imitating and connecting better and understanding more words, but they're still not going to be to the point that they don't need services, you know, perhaps, you know, long into the elementary school years. And um, children that are on the spectrum may need some level of educational support forever and mm-hmm. that's just that's just part of it too it really just depends on the child and the needs and the situation and we can't always predict and say in so many sessions he's going to be age appropriate you know that just that's a recipe for disaster i and, uh, the longer i do it the less i feel like i can really know i mean I, you get right. some indication but i have one of my caseload right now he on the, in the beginning looked really very apraxic 
and um, but then very quickly started to make progress, and is now he's not quite at age level, but he's from a guy who had no words. He has quite a little arsenal of single words, and he's just turning two. It's like, ooh, wow, yeah, you know, where'd that come from? Right. Um, and he really may be a kid that you get to discharge before he's three. Yeah. I think I probably will, which I would not have predicted. Right. Based on where he was when he was evaluated and the first time I saw him. I mean, I, I didn't tell mom that, but I thought, eh, this is going to yeah. be this is going to be a, a long haul, and I, right. I think he'll I'll discharge him before three because he's. And I wouldn't have thought it, but he is. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I love it when we have those successes. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left in the show, and we have another question or a question since we haven't gotten to this. And I know that we're going to start this today and get to finish it next week. But I do want to go ahead and start it because um, I feel like we have exhausted talking about your little friend, unless there's any other thing you want to bring up about that. Nope. Okay, so let's move on to this question. And again, I know this is going to be a two-part thing. There's no way we're going to be able to address all of this in one. Well, we'll have uh, to leave it like on a cliffhanger note so that people really want to tune in next week to hear what we have to say about it. Well, I'm fading fast, so you'll have to be, I got all, all kind of worked up talking about how that other thing, and I can feel myself slowly declining. So you may have to do this. Well, we only have the 10 minutes. Part. Oh, well, I'll try and come up with something. <laughs> okay. This is, a que- this is a question from, she's a person who attended my conference in Franklin when I was right outside Nashville last month, and she's asking for help. She says, I have a very difficult child on my caseload right now, and I left your conference feeling empowered with wonderful new things to try with him. Specifically, I was reminded of the importance of social games and interaction prior to communication. I wrote out a new lesson plan and was very excited to try new things with him. However, I am hitting a wall with this kiddo. He cries for the entire session, and it doesn't seem like an I am mad cry. It's truly an I am really overwhelmed cry. And then she asked me, does that make sense? And to her, I would say, absolutely, that makes sense. Yeah. We've seen that before. You know you know exactly what she's talking about as she describes that, don't you, Kate? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I do too. And in one little boy in particular, that we're not going to say his name, but remember we treated him several years ago, and he just cried all day at that first little daycare that he went to. Oh that's yeah, this, yeah. That's who this little guy reminds me of. She says he isn't crying to try and really get out of interacting with me. I truly feel like he's crying because he simply cannot handle me being in his face, singing and playing fun games in an attempt to get him to engage with me. In our first session. I had out the farm toys. When I put the cow up to my face and said, moo, he started crying. And then she says, it's really sad. If we're playing with a toy and I do something loud with my voice, like up, 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 or one, two, three, go, he starts crying. And she goes on to say he's 20 months old. His only vocalization is mmm and crying. <laughs> he, do, he does not put his hands together for any reason, so I have backed off trying to get him to sign. He puts everything in his mouth. We're trying to make the sessions very fun and engaging, but he is completely overwhelmed. And she says, what do I do with a kid that I believe may have very, may be very sensitive to sounds and other stimuli? She goes on to say, I've recommended that he see an OT, but that won't change the fact that he is very delayed in his language skills. I just don't know what else to try. He just cries and cries. 
Then she says, at the end of the session, he will come and cuddle with me, and he stops crying. She said, it's really sweet, and it lets me know that he doesn't hate me. She said, is it any thoughts? Is it? It's just so hard to push him out of his comfort zone because he gets so sad. Do I just keep pushing, or do you have other thoughts? And so I thought this was a great question for us to talk about on the show because there are so many little nuances and kind of layers to uncover um, with this kind of question. And I certainly have seen children like this, as I'm sure you have too, Kate, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. They are definitely out there. Yeah, and the first thing that she did that I think is the first thing I would say, too, is that he absolutely needs occupational therapy because he certainly is having some sensory processing differences. It is not normal for a 20-month-old to cry and be overwhelmed and really kind of demonstrate that over-responsiveness or hyper-response to um, hearing loud noises and singing, and that truly is a reaction um, that he's having because he's not processing those incoming sounds like you would expect a normal kid to. And so uh, an occupational therapist can certainly help children with sensory processing um, disorders, almost said disasters, but that would probably be a better word. (laughs) A sensory processing disaster with um, him being so... um, overwhelmed and overstimulated by her um, attempts to engage him verbally. And if um, a mom who's listening that you're not quite sure what I'm talking about, you haven't heard the term sensory processing disorder before, you can Google that and get some good information. There's some information on my website at teachmetotalk.com about that, but basically the the paragraph explanation of sensory processing disorders is, you know, we think about all of our senses that we use to tell us what's going on in the world around us. It can be how we hear, like we're talking about with this little boy. It can be how we see. It can be with touch. Um, It can be with taste. You know, again, all the things, all of our senses there. I left out one. I only said four. What's the one that I didn't say? Um... Mouth hearing, yeah, yeah, and just how your body moves, and you, you process that in all those. We're always receiving that information through our senses, and children who overreact or underreact to that kind of incoming information are thought to have a disorder in the way that their little brains and bodies perceive that information. So that's kind of the short version for what sensory processing disorders and differences are. And it sounds like, I love that she's identified, this this therapist, that this little boy, it's not that he doesn't like her. And I met this woman, she's very sweet, very, I would suspect that she's really nurturing and caring and she was fun too, though, you know, playful. So she's she's trying, and I love that she identified, okay, this is not me. <laughs> it's not that he doesn't like me. Because haven't you had moms before, Kate, that just, they know that their kids love them, but if they really think that it's them, they think, oh, I can't sing, so he's covering his ears when I sing. Or mm-hmm. my voice is so bad. It just, you know, and they, again, they don't look at it like it's an issue that, 
the kid has, you know, they, they look at it more of kind of a personality thing or an attachment issue when it's really a sensory issue. So she did a good thing by identifying that and by saying, you know, but I can't just refer him to an OT and not work on his language. That's not a good enough fix either. So next week in our show, we're going to spend the show talking about how we have to be well-versed in the strategies that we use so that we can provide a little bit of OT or that those meet his sensory system needs while we're doing speech and while we're doing DI. I feel like an OT a lot of days, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I would never <laughs> never play one. You would never say that. The way, but the way I so. do speech therapist, but... Yeah, and sometimes I don't even, you know, like the, oh, I've really moved towards having kids give me high fives a lot or give me give me five a lot. Now, even though um, high incentive may be different or the thought process behind it, I have kind of noticed, gee, when you give them that opportunity, give you that nice hard smack. Um, also, it's interesting to see that some give you that really light smack, and I always try and yeah. move them towards, no, I want a big one, I want a real high five. But anyway, um, you know, I might not do it for exactly the same reasons, but certainly I think to be good as a DI or to be good as a speech therapist or to be good as an OT, you really kind of have to embrace what the other disciplines do and your and what they teach you. Yeah, and what yeah. what you learn from them and what you can work into your sessions. And this is a kid who I think you alluded to it on with this um, gal that, you know, she's going to have to do some OT kind of stuff. And she yeah. will probably do it somewhat differently than the OT because her emphasis is communication. But it's going to be giving his body what he needs so that he's able to tolerate it. The other thing yeah. I'll say is, Laura, you talked about all the sensitivities and certainly those are all um, – you know, possibilities, but in in our line of work, we do see this auditory sensitivity a lot. I mean, you know, yeah. kids. These are the kids who hate the garbage disposal, hate the lawnmower. They've the the blow dryer freaks them out. Um, you know, see a lot of tactile stuff too. I mean, they're yeah. very sensitive to textures in food. Very sensitive to their clothes. They hate the grass. They hate the sand. They hate you know any one of our combination of those things, but. I think it's because our focus is communication. Kids who have a lot of auditory sensitivities tend to be um, not very in tune to communication. I think they get pretty darn good at tuning it out and avoiding it. Exactly. So it's not a shock that a lot of the kids we see have this auditory piece. And sometimes it's that they're hypersensitive to it, and they're you know they're the, this guy who's crying because she's in his face trying to be fun. Or they're the kids that I lovingly refer to. A bomb could go off and they wouldn't blink. They're the kids yeah. that, you know, it takes so much to get their attention at all. But it, to you know, register. At the end of the, yeah, to register. So, but anyway, I'm just saying, you know, as a new therapist, as a parent who's trying to figure out what's going on with their child, look to that auditory piece because if you're concerned about their communication, a lot of times that is part of the puzzle. It, just, it, it is. I mean, and it's mm-hmm. really the first piece of the puzzle, and you mm-hmm. already said it. They already have sensitivities to, and they're either on one side of the extreme or the other side of the extreme. They either don't register and don't, speech is just another background noise to them and isn't important and it doesn't uh, send off the same kind of alert, alert, alert 
little, uh, you know, listen, under, and over time, understand what she says, process that incoming message. Their little brains don't perceive speech and language the same way that other kids are. So guess what? You have a delay. And then on the other end of that, the kids who are, you know, ah, oh, that's irritating to me. I can't stand that noise. Ah, get me out of here. Those kids, no wonder they don't understand speech either, and they're certainly not going to use words if they don't understand them. So that's kind of the beginning piece with what's going on with them and why they're late talkers, because words haven't meant anything to them yet. Either they've tuned it out or it's been so aversive to them that they haven't tuned in enough to respond other than by crying or um shutting down in some other way, whatever way they do. So it's, it's real interesting when we start talking about this because, again, you're exactly right. A parent doesn't know these things, and a new therapist may not have had enough experience to really talk about it. And certainly sensory issues, I don't know if they cover that now in school, but I got maybe, oh, a brief mention. Well, they didn't when I got a master's in interdisciplinary early childhood education, and it wasn't too many years ago because, you know, I'm very slow to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. So. <laughs> It was. I've been doing uh, developmental therapy, as we called it in Indiana, for five or six years by the time I got a master's, and that took a couple years. So it hadn't been, you know, five, six years ago. The only mention of sensory integration um, five or six years ago getting a master's in interdisciplinary early childhood education was done by a student who was a mom, and she had adopted a child who had a lot of sensory issues, and she gave a talk on it in one of our classes. But that was it. Now, that's wow. pretty bad. That's pretty bad. You know, I mean. Yeah. Because yeah. it's well, such a factor in so many of the kids we work with. It and is a factor. And how could you talk about working with this population and not have that be something that comes up in, on a regular basis? But it didn't. And and what happens is is that you blame a kid's behavior. You blame things that a that are happening, you're not attributing it to the right stuff. You're calling a kid who, like this, you know, a mom thinks he just doesn't like the way I sing, or, you know, you're looking at a kid and attributing sensory processing issues to something else. And so you're not, you're not when you don't recognize and understand sensory processing, it doesn't get better and the, your strategies don't ever work because you're not doing the right stuff. You're not addressing the real problem. And so that's what we're going to talk about next week. And, again, we're going to talk about it from our perspective. We're not OTs. You know, we've had some training because we've gone to some courses and we've certainly had trial by fire because I believe, like you believe, you cannot be an early interventionist and not – and I just don't see how people can – and I have these therapists who say to me at conferences, man, I don't know anything about sensory issues. I don't know any of that. What should I do? And I say, get yourself to a course like tomorrow. Don't go back to work until you read this book, you know, mm-hmm. because it's that important. It's that important. But, again, next week we'll talk about this handling this very real situation from this very real therapist and this very real little boy, how we treat those sensory issues from our perspectives, because we have to do it. You know, she doesn't have an OT in her office. She, uh, it didn't sound like May, I mean, this little boy may not even end up getting OT for whatever reason. So we have to be able to integrate those strategies into our sessions and know what we're doing even if we don't completely understand how it works, and you alluded to that before, Kate, sometimes you don't know the theory, you just know it works, and 
That's what you right. go with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or you understand the theory just well enough to know, okay, she said it works and it worked and that's just what we're going to do. And that's okay. Certainly for a new therapist or for a mom trying to figure this stuff out, it's all right if you don't understand every little single thing about it with our suggestions that we're going to talk about next week. But we're going to talk about how we would handle this and what kinds of things generally do work to treat this kind of issue in kids because you're going to see it a lot if you're a therapist uh, working with really young children. Definitely. All right. So is that enough of a tease? I think it is. I think that's good. Ooh, they'll be waiting till next Sunday to listen to what we have to say about that. <laughs> oh, I hope you'll join us next time, and we'll talk about this question some more. Thanks for a great show, Kate. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Bye.